a hundred years ago on January the 19th. The first Doyle met in the mansion house in Dublin. Hundreds of miles away, in Salahed Beg, two RIC men were shot dead by an IRA brigade. For many, it was the start of the War of Independence. The History Show with Kieran Doyle on West Cork FM. I'm up here at the Salah Headbeck Ambush Impact and Legacy Conference. It is today is the 100 year anniversary of the Salah Head Ambush plus the founding of the Doyle and the first meeting of them. And I'm here now today with one of the founding members of this conference, Dr. Noreen Higgins McHugh, and I have the pleasure of talking to her about the conference. Hello, Doctor. Can I call you Noreen? You of course I can call you Noreen, Kieran. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, the significance of it happened is that it's the first time that there was actually a conflict between the Irish volunteers and uh, the, Irish, uh, the Royal Irish Constabulary, and where actually men were shot dead. Now, your Cork listeners would be very interested to know that there had been a similar ambush done in Valivorne, uh, just about six weeks after the German plot of 1918. And in that, uh, there was an attempt to capture rifles as I understand it, by the Ballyvourney volunteers from RIC constables, and one was, very, was wounded, and very severely wounded, but he survived. So Salahed Beg could have actually happened on in Ballyvourney. Um, but he didn't die. Uh, he survived that ambush, and, although it, and the other man was also wounded. So Salahed Beg happened when the uh, two men from the RIC were acting as an escort to a consignment of gelignite, which is like dynamite, and they were bringing it to a quarry. And the local volunteers wanted this gelignite for explosives. They wanted um, to maybe to hit RIC barracks at a later date and, and they were just gathering ammunition. Now, whether they actually intended to kill the two constables at the time, nobody's really sure. That's where opinions tend to differ. Um, they were hiding for six days, waiting for this consignment of jelly night to arrive. They didn't actually know the date or the time, but they knew it was in, on, on, on route. And it happened to be come to Salahed Bay Quarry on the 21st of January, which, of course, the anniversary is next Monday. But this is the Salahed Bay weekend, so it is actually the 100th anniversary of it. And so they were accompanying the, the Jellic Knight as everyone accompanied, uh, even still today, to this day, uh, people, uh, the, the police actually, there was a police escort accompanying dynamite to various quarries or for any explosive material. So they were accompanying it at that time. The men had been lying uh, in wait for them and they confronted them. There was a scuffle. Um, some people say that the Salahed Bambush, they said hands up, said surrender. Some say that Tracy and Breen were determined to shoot anyway. Um, but the result was that two constables were shot dead. So it was a direct conflict. There wasn't any ambiguity about it. Um, there had been a constable, um, uh, been Sarge, it was Constable it was, um, Major Mills of the RIC had actually been killed in 1917, in June 1917, when their prisoners came back from uh, Francock. But he'd been hitting the hurley with the head, and as a result, hurleys were actually banned um, carrying hurleys because it was actually a lethal weapon. But that was kind of incidental. He'd been in a melee, and in, but this was a deliberate confrontational act, and that was the significance of it. So it starts off the War of Independence. Nothing much happens in 1919. There's sporadic killing and fighting and 
for instance, the, the, death, the, the shooting of Inspector Hunt uh, in Thurles in, in, in May 1920. And then there's another uh, killing of another IRSC constable up in Lauren in September, which is also in Tipperary. But essentially the War of Independence really galvanizes and takes, um, moves on very forward in 1920. I noticed, Noreen, in your, in your beginning speech there in the conference, you mentioned that there's a lot more opinions. I suppose it's 100 years on. We have a more mature outlook in history. And you did mention there was some controversy in killing the RAC officers. Do we know how that their deaths affected the local community at the time? Were they celebrated? No, no, no that's the whole point. When the, these two RAC men, one came from Mayo, one from came from Coachford in County Cork. And he's actually buried down in Coachford County Cork. Um, I think his name is, uh, one of his MacDonald and O'Connell. I think his O'Connell is from County Cork. And uh, MacDonald in particular was from Mayo. He was a widower, he had eight children. He was... Um, he, 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 he had uh, other little jobs on the site. He would sell uh, vegetables from allotments. He was very much a member of the community here. He worked for 30 years, was a native Irish speaker. And he's actually buried in Tipperary Town. So when these two men were killed, it created shock and, and horror in the local community that these were neighbours, these were friends. Uh, the church then, Canon Arthur Ryan in Tipperary Town, condemned it. And he said, there's an old expression where Tipperary leads, Ireland follows, and God help Ireland if they follow in this field of blood. It's, it's interesting, and I often wonder, and knowing we'd be of a generation where before perhaps modern history has uh, uncovered a lot of these archives, that our memory would have been shaped a lot by memoirs like Dan Breen's. Yes. Um, do you think it's, it's, it kind of romanticises the event? When you look at Breen's uh, book, which I was looking at last night, it romanticises the events. It also puts him at the centre of events. It actually makes out that he's practically the, the commanding officer. Whereas when you look at the Bureau of Military History of Statements, it, it comes out that Robinson is actually the OC, the Operation Commandant. They didn't have uh, permission from headquarters. It was a standalone operation, and that he himself didn't fire any fatal shots. He spent a lot of his life uh, t- saying how much he had done for Ireland. But as pointed out in a book by my colleague Des Moran, uh, who wrote a book called Third Brigade, which is based on Tipperary, South Tipperary activities, um, he just compared, you know, Breen's experiences to the experiences of men in World War One. You know, they they suffered a lot more, but. Um, now, as my colleague Desmarnan again has illustrated in his book, uh, the, Third Bra- the Third Brigade, he says that uh, Breen actually follows Churchill's uh, lead, even though Breen would have hated that comparison. Churchill got his account of World War I out first, and then it becomes source material, the primary material. Breen got his account out first, so everyone has to refer back to Breen's account and how it actually evolves around. And as he said, he puts himself in the centre of action. So, um, so when you look at it with Breen, I mean, he actually didn't live in Tipperary afterwards. He spent 50 years as MP and he actually, or, sorry, TD for Ireland, and uh, he actually lived in Dublin uh, for most of the time. Um, he was basically kind of a gunman always, and he felt very, you know, he was, he was kind of, he, he didn't have very much of a distinguished career in the doll. He didn't make that transition. And he also had a very, very, uh, he, very he was basically a man who had been reared in a lot of uh, very, very poor circumstances, and he very much felt that. And uh, part of it was his getting at the establishment yes. um, by killing these RIC. And, uh, and, and so he does romanticise it. And later generations do, do go back and romanticise it. But to be very clear, it was a, a period of history which was uh, very bloody, very tragic for a number of families. The local population, and it needs to be books on that, how do they suffer in it? This area was declared a military zone immediately after us. There were sweeps of houses. There was The RIC went, uh, they were looking for these men who were on the run. They were all being uh, protected by the community and by many of them. There was a lot of the community who didn't want them at all. And uh, they were bringing a lot of trouble to people. Part of your conference, of course, also examines the political side of things that are going on here as well, because obviously there's the 100-year anniversary of the, the first meeting of the Doyle Aaron, which by coincidence happened on the same day. Yes. Yes, this ambush. Uh, what, are, do we, what are we going to expect today? 
Well, because this conference is based in Salahed Beg, uh, Dr. Manzer will mention a bit of the first stall. Um, I have also talked about it in my first speech because it's important to just not look at this ambush in isolation. We have to kind of say the first stall was happening. Stall was happening on the 21st of January. It was coincidental that Salahed Beg happened on the same date. Uh, internationally, it didn't look very well for the first stall. The Dahl, people in the Dáil and HQ, particularly Richard Mulcahy, they were trying to, and and, uh, and Michael Collins and all them, they were trying to project Ireland as a mature country able to run its own affairs. Uh, Mulcahy in particular was hopping mad that Salahed Bay had happened because he felt it took from the, uh, the reporting of the Dáil. Uh, Michael Collins was said to be a bit more sympathetic. He kind of could see that, unfortunately, you would need both um, wings. You would need the violent agitation and you would need the constitutional agitation. You just couldn't go down the constitutional route alone. So... And you've got Dr. Manzra here. How did you manage that coup? How did you manage to get the... Well, Dr. Manzra, of course, is a native of here, and um, he's a native of the, of the parish. Um, he launched a book for me a number of years ago, which was based on the Tide War, uh, which I would be delighted to talk to in Cork, because it's a very big event in Cork as well. And, uh, and so I would kind of know him through history circles. He's very accessible and, of course, very interested in this whole topic. So, listeners, there's uh, Noreen talking to us about the uh, Solahed Beg uh, conference. She's given a pretty good overview of what it's about. Now, there's fantastic speakers at this conference. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to listen to them all today. But let me just tell you, Sean Hogan was there speaking about the 1918 election, in particular with attention on Tipperary. Um, one of Ireland's leading historians in the RIC, Jim Hurley, was there as well. Of course, Dr. Mansara, uh, who actually his father heard shots on that fateful morning, was there giving a the keynote lecture. But what I'm going to treat you to now is the lecture by Dr. Des Mernan, who forensically analysed Anne Breen's version of events in that famous memoir, My Fight for Irish Freedom. So listening to Des's um, analysis is a fantastic lecture, and you'll find, I know you're going to enjoy it. In the title of this talk, To Deserters, Spies and Hirelings, comes from Dan Breen's book, and it's in the 1924 version, which saw two printings. There's also a 44 version and a 64 revised edition. The quotation comes just as the ambush is about to take place at Salahed Beg, and refers to the RIC, of course. In the 1924 edition, which is the one where we most clearly hear Brian's voice, the reading is, for the men who are now approaching had deserted their country and were the spies and hirelings of her enemy. In the later 64 revised edition, this became what were they but a pack of deserters, spies and hirelings. Now, of course, the changes in the revised edition were more Dan Nolan, the Kerryman, than Dan Breen. Breen's book is still in print, very popular, had huge influence on an awful lot of people over generations. I'm not sure that many of the readers of that book realise that they're hearing Breen's voice mediated through Kitty O'Doherty and Dan Nolan. Um, maybe the book should come with some kind of health warning. Nolan was the publisher of the revised edition and he had a clear view of the ambush, describing it as that ghastly solid business. And as you know that police escort could have been overpowered without the shot being fired. I think the ambushers just lost their heads. He opined in a letter to Richard Mulcahy, who had an input in the revised edition. Now, spies and hirelings, as terms of condemnation, are entirely understandable, indeed traditional, and carry ideas of purchase and betrayal. But deserted their country is something else. Deserted from what? 
Now, presumably it brings concept of Irishness, but you can't desert from something you have never been, or seen, or shared. Constable MacDonald was 57 or so, born around 1862, and growing up with a different notion of Irishness to men like Brian. What MacDonald had naturally and organically knowledge of the Irish language, devoid of a political agenda, Tracy, Breen and company were painstakingly learning because it was their door into a kind of Irishness that Breen was on a solid road on a dull January day in order to promote. Yes, it is loaded with irony. Now, Breen's account continued, describing the two policemen with their rifles to the ready, which was their response to the order, hands up. Then this sentence, they were Irishmen too and would die rather than surrender which is the same in both editions of the book. So in the space of a few sentences, at this crucial point in the narrative, there is an ambivalence about the RIC. In spite of Breen's first condemnatory sentence, he found a point of identification with the enemy, the nobility which resulted from a shared Irishness. It was, of course, nonsense. Just being Irish didn't convey sterling qualities. I'm sure you'll find it shocking, but being Irish was not itself virtuous. So why did he find the need to insert that sentiment? Well, I think it has to do with that ambivalence. What cannot be emphasised enough is the reality, instigated and used by the British in their empire endeavours all over the world, of using the natives to control the natives. Twelve individuals were on that road at Salahed Beg, none different from the others as viewed by their imperial masters, all native Irish Catholic peasants two of whom had been inducted into a system to exercise control over the rest. In looking at the RIC, men like Tracy and Green were looking at themselves. No wonder there was ambivalence and bitterness. Now, using the natives to control the natives, in that respect it should be remembered that on the following 13th of April, in far-off India, at Amritsar, hundreds were killed when troops fired on a protest, a scene vividly brought to life in the movie Gandhi. Now the point about this is that the shooting was not done by British soldiers, ethnically British that is, but by troops in the uniform of the 54th Sikhs, the 59th Sindh Rifles and the 9th Gurkhas. And there is of course a link between Tipperary and Amritsar. Michael O'Dwyer from nearby Baronstown, Stones Throw really, carried some political responsibility. In 1940, in retirement in London, he was killed by a disaffected Indian nationalist. There was approval in some Irish quarters. Now, back in the early 1990s, two historians who specialise in the history of the police in Ireland, W.J. Lowe and Elizabeth Malcolm, wrote an influential article called The Domestication of the RIC, by which they meant that by the early 20th century, the RIC and the police in Dublin operated largely as police forces in terms we would understand today, what the authors termed a civil police force. Along with this is the notion of an American historian, Lawrence McBride, about what he called the greening of Dublin Castle. And that was a process of normalisation, of assimilation, you might think. Statistics can obfuscate as well as educate. And the following figures I think hugely enlightening with respect to the status of Ireland within the United Kingdom after nearly 120 years of union. In November 1916, the Chief Secretary informed the Commons in response to a parliamentary question, apparently he had no embarrassment about it, that of 37 county inspectors, of 32 counties, but obviously some counties were 
provider. So of 37 county inspectors in the RIC, the key grade, four were Roman Catholic. The RIC was not a police force as well with the population it served. Imagine a marriage where the husband totally controls the finances and has the wife account for each penny spent, any action made, every step taken. In the context of this argument about the normalisation of the police force, the central fact can be obscured. The most important fact of all. The purpose of the RIC was to enforce the political agendas of two British political parties, whose voters were English, Scottish, Welsh, but not Irish, allowing the confluence between Tories and Unionists. The primary agendas were essentially two, to defeat self-government in any form, or, if you were liberal, perhaps allowed in very limited form on some of the island. When on the 6th of September 1867, nine members of the police force, including one from Emily and another from Gartofoe, were in Argyll, were honoured at police headquarters in Kings Park before the Lord Lieutenant and the Chief Secretary, it was not for their diligence in smashing machine stills or collating agricultural statistics, though they did each of these tasks very well. Note, the newly named Royal Irish Constabulary was being honoured for defeating Fenianism. And in this regard, Seamus Heaney's wonderful poem, Constable Calls, and he's referring to the RUC in this, but it's entirely opposite. He, he's referring to the policeman, had unstrapped the heavy ledger, and my father was making tillage returns in acres, roofs, and perches. Arithmetic and fear. For Tracy, Breen, and the others in Solihead Bay, but not Robinson. The face of the enemy was the RRC. For young men, their engagement with the British state was largely, and for some probably entirely, by way of interaction with the RIC. Robinson, you remember, saw combat against the British Army in Dublin during Easter week, which was his main recommendation to Eamon Adair and the Tipperary volunteers for bringing him to Tipperary. That and the fact that he was willing and anxious to come. Now, human nature doesn't change. And I've always assumed if you were a Tipperary man, in your own county, your own town or village. It was especially galling being bossed about by some Japanese from Kerry or Donegal whose personality was subsumed by the wearing of a dark green uniform and to wield the authority of the King's law. Can there be a doubt that, that being ordered about by a constable with a Kerry accent was more galling than being sworn at by a chap from the Hampshire Regiment with an accent to match? Both were perhaps painful, but only one could be perceived as betrayal. Now, the Tipperary military barracks occupied since 1879 was home to a regimental battalion, some eight to nine hundred men in a rotation of maybe two to three years. While Tracy and company disliked its presence, on the occasion did the troops connect with local life. During the Great War, like everything else, this changed. And for a time, thousands of troops from two Ulster regiments were trained, followed by the use of the extensive facilities as a so-called command depot then became a training and rehabilitation centre for wounded soldiers, again thousands of them. And if anything, this latter usage was determined to join the British Army because you saw the consequences of it, and in spite of the best efforts of the temporary parish priest who was recruiter-in-chief. The point is that for all their very obvious presence, the military, while usually not impacted on everyday life, it was a bitter reminder of, in quotation marks, occupation. And in Midwest Tipperary, a reminder also of the enemy's resources which, if engaged, some jagged knife might be useful. Another galling aspect of the RIC was their ubiquity. 
and Sean has mentioned that they were everywhere. Certainly they were everywhere in Tipperary. Historically, that most notorious of counties, and traditionally the most heavily policed. It's no accident that a professional police force originated in the county. But at the beginning of the 20th century, an English travel writer, his father was from Paris, passed to Kilsheelan, which you might think was a pretty peaceful spot. He couldn't get over the number of police, five in this instance, with seeming little to do except, of course, to keep their eyes and ears open and report about quote-unquote strangers in the village. From every corner of Ireland, such reports were sent to Dublin Castle, reinforcing the understanding that the RIC was the first line of defence against any expression of nationalism that raised its focus above ground level. Now, ironically, given all the toing and froing around Tipperary in the days before the 21st of January, the RIC's eyes and ears were on some kind of post-Christmas hiatus, or perhaps not. The evidence, I think, suggests that some members of the RIC chose not to see what was there to be seen. A third negative thing to the RIC, like the air when slurry has been spread on fields, was their role doing the dirty work during the many phases of the land war. There remained occasional specific land agitations when the RIC was on hand to enforce not what people wanted but what the law demanded. For example, a year after the ambush of so January 1920, the RIC, as of old, was on hand to carry out dawn arrests of nine men involved in agitation over the sale of the Shore Castle estate near Cashel. Now, the point is that memory is a sharp and durable weapon, and in Midwest Tipperary, there was a great deal to remember with respect to the police and land agitation. On a narrow or domestic front, the police were always there as agents of partisan direction often petty and trivial, but all the more bothersome for that. In July 1917, for example, P.J. Belloni, who was a successful Sinn Féin candidate in the election of the following year, was arrested, along with four young women, for collecting money for the East Clare by-election, which, of course, the Clare won. The local magistrates threw the case out. But as far as the RIC was concerned, well, you might think sarcastically, way to go, Jacks. Therefore, in Midwest Tipperary, there had been much confrontation with the police manifested at every level. From the terminal, when in 1916 Michael O'Callaghan, all strategy absent, shot and killed two of them, to the absurd, when in the Dundrum courtroom, James Robinson spent his time singing quite foul the diddle lie. <laughs> so a confrontation at Salahed Beg was another such, where the common space between the O'Callaghan and Robinson models, well, that remained to be seen. Incidentally, had events turned out differently, the first RIC fatality since the two policemen killed by O'Callaghan might have been the sergeant stationed at Limerick Junction, again, just down the road, an individual very well known to Tracy and Green. When Tracy was in prison and on hunger strike in early 1918, there was, it seems, a plan to kidnap the sergeant, whose regular visits to Jimmy White's pub being well known. Jimmy White's pub is still in business and they're not paying to say this, but I'm sure they'd be delighted to see something tonight. <laughs> anyway, the plan didn't come off. The IRB stamped on it, and some of the local volunteers, Artie Barlow, for example, very unhappy with what they saw as outside interference, and renounced the IRB, though it won't do, I think, to dismiss the IRB as a potent influence on the brigade, the third brigade, as has been done. Now, I entirely discount Dan Breen's later version that the object of the exercise at Salahed Beg was to kill policemen and precipitate tension into conflict. 
Green is forever captured on video, very much the last few weeks or so, as a leonine old man lamenting that there was not a half a dozen policemen available that day for death. In his book, he was altogether more circumspect. The later edition, we renewed our demand for surrender. We would have preferred to avoid bloodshed, but they, the RIC, were inflexible. Further appeal was useless. It was a matter of our lives or theirs. We took aim. The two policemen fell, mortally wounded. Now, note the careful choice of words. We took aim. The two policemen fell, mortally wounded. Between the aiming and the falling, a loud silence about culpability. In the earlier edition, which, as I said, more faithfully represents Breen, they were dogged and stubborn, and now it was our lives or theirs. Their fingers were on the triggers. Another appeal on our side would be useless, perhaps too late for ourselves. Quick and sure, our folly rang out. The aim was true. The two policemen were dead. Nowhere does Breen claim that he killed anyone, though in later life he never drew attention to this, having to go along with the idea that he fired the shot that started the War of Independence. The first line in his Irish Times obituary is testimony to the power of self-promotion. Mr. Dan Breen, the man who fired the first shot after 1916 in the struggle against British forces in Ireland. Now, the Irish Times is wrong, managing two serious errors in just 20 words. But it does show the value which Churchill understood better than most. If you get in first with the written account, you can fix an agenda, create a legend, establish a story, and become the go-to source for lazy historians. Something all too evident these past days. In fact, there were shots fired earlier. For example, in May 1917, two constables were fired at and wounded in an incident in County Roscommon. July 1918 as an incident in Ballyborne. Now, not for nothing did Dan Green spend a lifetime as acolyte before the altar of his own legend. That's the soundbite from this. Successfully, it would seem. When Green was interviewed by Jim Maher, the Kilkenny historian, a few months before his death, and asked about the ambush, raising the question about whether the policemen fired their rifles, Breen told Maher to read out what he had written in My Fight for Irish Freedom, which Maher did from the first edition. Maher didn't pursue the, qu the, the question of who fired the fatal shots, moving on to other matters such as the importance of acting independently of Dublin, the hit and run nature of guerrilla war, not to mention endless occasions when volunteers were waiting about for the enemy to show up, and of course relevant to the Saleh Beg ambush, though not cited as an example of the need to procure arms. Now, if today horror is expressed at the killing of two policemen going about their work on that January day in 1919, there is, I think, a facile and erroneous equivalence in some people's minds with today's Gardaí. The Irish people had no say whatever in the legal underpinning of the RIC, no say whatever in its control, no say whatever in its personnel, no say whatever in its deployment. Though it has to be admitted that on recent evidence, they were a great deal more efficient in their duties than their successors. As I said, law is the agenda of a political party. The 1918 general election had given a mandate to a native party, Sinn Féin, to make laws. However, for the moment, that was contested, and the first engagement in that contest was at Salah Hedbeg. However, while the members of the RIC at Salah Hedbeg were agents of the British state, the status of the volunteers was much less clear. Outside of cities, leadership usually depended on long-established identification with place. 
who you were was a measure of what you could be. Paddy O'Dwyer, a participant in Solihead Bay, proclaimed, I was born in the parish of the Common near Hollyford, County Tipperary, in August 1898. My father, who was a farmer, must have been connected with the Fenian organisation, for I understand that after the collapse of the Fenian Rising in County Tipperary in 1867, it was he, my father, who guided the Fenian leader, Charles Burke, to safety after the attack on the RIC bars of Oskeen near Paris. Similarly for Ty Crow, I was born in the year 1898, the same year, in the parish of Solihead, about four miles from Tipperary town. My people were farmers, and I too, having completed my school days, settled down to life on the farm with my parents and other members of my family. Nothing unusual in any of this, except it highlighted the anomalous situation of Seamus Robinson. For Dan Breen, the opening of his memoir and one of his witness statements is redolent of family and place. About the longest memory I have, that is as clear to me today as it was at the time, is the Boer War. The people around my district were all pro-Boer. And I listened to the daily discussions that took place on the progress of the war. I also remember what was probably the last of the evictions that took place near my home. Now, how much any of these recollections are true doesn't matter. What matters is the way in which place, personality, time, and memory make us rooted and connected. In Robinson's witness statement, it took him four pages of circumlocution before he gets to his early life. And then it's pages more of words of running communication. So, pretty wordy. To state the obvious, Robinson was different and intensely conscious all his life of that difference. He was not a temporary man, and so his technical leadership was always problematic. Not least, famous number two, Sean Tracy, was such a charismatic, driven personality. 